Thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, come and give this paper. Um, it's always terrible to hear one's, you know, history like that in a way, but, you know, it just shows how, you know, sort of how complicated it is. And I have these kind of heroes in my background, people like Peter Rucco and perhaps Bob Layton, as you mentioned them. Uh, but also, you know, sort of uh, being here, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the pit rivers and uh, what I've always seen as the embodiment of a, a very broad idea of anthropology, you know, rather than what I see as the kind of sociologizing of anthropology that happened in a particular context in which I had many, you know, sort of uh, great things to it. But I think one of the limitations of it was it's, it, it lost the breadth. And I think material culture and the revival of material culture studies, uh, you know, is, is, is really a very uh, pertinent and a very important uh, you know, sense of, you know, regaining, you know, that, that breadth. And part of that breadth is comparison. And this is a comparative paper. And it came out of a contribution, a very short contribution that, uh, you know, sort of I made to uh, a, a conference in Rome on... Uh, uh, the future of ethnographic museums in Europe, you know, the RIME series of conferences and workshops. And uh, uh, Claire Harris was there, and, uh, you know, she, um, and she also gave a paper on the same session on the role of digital technologies and uh, community engagement and museums. And uh, I think we had a long kind of conversation afterwards, and I think that's still going on. And uh, so I, you know, given that stimulus, I've expanded it. Um, I should say this is a joint paper. It's very much a paper which I've done and, and been inspired by working with Graham Weir, who was at UCL uh, uh, and uh, involved in both UCL museums and collections and in the anthropology department. So he had this sort of joint position between a museum and, and a university anthropology department. Again, kind of parallel to here. And uh, he's now uh, moved to University of Queensland and he runs their museum studies program there. Um, but we work together very much on the idea that... Um, uh, understanding the uh, potential for ethnographic collections, you know, involves ethnography, involves fieldwork, and involves kind of classic anthropology. And it's about what to do with the collections within that kind of uh, uh, wider context of research and fieldwork that uh, we put this paper together for that uh, meeting and uh, gave it this title, rather ponderous title, of Dig Digital Heritage Technologies, Issues of Community Engagement and Cultural Restitution in New Style Ethnographic Museums. Maybe we won't live up to that, uh, certainly probably today, but, you know, the one, one starts, has to start somewhere. So um, it basically depends, the paper revolves around three case studies, and uh, I need to go into them in a bit of detail, so I'm going to, you know, just sort of read the paper, if you don't mind, and uh, then hopefully we can have a bit of discussion afterwards. Okay, the main, the main argument of our paper is to address the question, following the title of a recent book on museums and American life by Stephen Conn, called Do Museums Still Need Objects? In terms of debates on cultural restitution, we argue that digital technologies may allow for a new economy of objects, which sustains knowledge and, and uh, technology, uh, which sustains uh, knowledge and revival practices without the need for the return of physical objects. 
The paradox this implies is embedded in the fact that ethnographic museums are faced with an ever-growing need to increase access to their collections and justify their relevance to communities and stakeholders. And this is especially challenging for those communities located in remote or rural locations. Digital heritage technologies seem, therefore, to meet part of this need by offering remote access to museum websites, online databases of cultural holdings, as well as, well as virtual walkthroughs of exhibitions. They also offer the opportunity for co-authorship and collaboration with communities through tagging and annotation tools, giving voice to collections that are seldom researched or exhibited. So, the civilizing mission of the museum, brought to people through the click of a computer mouse button, seems to offer opportunities for education, regeneration, and community empowerment. And I'm sure many of you have seen recent uh, papers by Kristen, McTavish, Parry, and others along these kind of lines. In North America, digital technologies are playing a key role in community representation and reconciliation. First Nation communities are appropriating digital technologies to support cultural self-representation by creating and managing websites, video projects, and so forth. Communities are also collaborating with museums using digital technologies to share knowledge. One such example, as on the screen, is the Reciprocal Research Network, uh, based at the Museum of Anthropology, University of British Columbia. And this was established in Canada to facilitate access to museum collections for First Nations people from the northwest coast and British Columbia. The RRN is being co-developed by a group of First Nations groups and the Museum of Anthropology at UBC. It's an online tool to facilitate reciprocal and collaborative research about cultural heritage from the northwest coast. And the RRN enables communities, cultural institutions and researchers to work together. Users can build their own collections, collaborate on shared projects, record stories, upload files, hold discussions, research museum collections, and create social networks. And this collaboration, described here as a partnership of peoples, ensures the needs of the originating communities as well as museums are taken into account at all stages of the development. And each co-developer has a member of the, on the steering group, and each of the First Nations has several community liaisons. Increased accessibility to mobile telecommunications around the world is transforming the way in which people access state bureaucracies, manage relationships, and circulate capital. And this is particularly significant in West Africa and the Pacific, the focus for this paper, where until recently mobile telecommunications were restricted to urban centres and middle-class elites. In the Pacific, the Irish mobile telecommunications company Digicel has, has established internet and mobile phone coverage to rural areas of Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Samoa and Tonga. Mobile phone communications have boosted the economies of the region and phone ownership has soared in rural and remote areas where previously people had to travel long distances to access poor landline connections. And in Africa we're also promised an array of modes of mobile phone and broadband networks uh, by the end of, the, of 2012 seen in the development of optical fibre networks around Africa by 2013. And this just gives you a summary of what is promised, at least, uh, as underseas cable networks by, 20, by the end of 2013. 
The role of objects in museum collections and display is heavily nuanced by the legacies of 19th century European epistemologies, when it was assumed that objects were not merely to be looked at, but were sources of meaning and knowledge, not available to the untrained observer. But this, this formed an earlier legitimation for the purpose of the museum to display as many objects as possible, then critiques of such elitist views of the museum object led to the dramatic reduction of objects on display in museums through the latter part of the 20th century. The introduction of digital technologies occurs, therefore, not only in the context of a renewed questioning of the pedagogy involved in what some see as a consequent trivialization of the museum exhibition, but also in renewed questioning of the status of the physical object as synecdoche for larger bodies of knowledge, rather than as a thing in itself. Now, we won't, I won't go into the complexities of these, of, these dispa- of these debates now, except to point towards a more general renewal of an interest on objects for display, on collections for research, and their importance as a sort of witnessing of the past. And so Ruth Phillips writing about the second museum age, uh, more re- in, quite recently, and uh, Ruth Krauss also writing about the mega museum and the role of collections in the commodification of the mega museum, you know, as part of what she sees as the mega museum in late capitalism, are all part of, I think, of these, <coughs> these significant debates. Ironically, this renewed questioning of the role of objects converges with the experience of the museum in the two non-European contexts of the Pacific and West Africa, to which this paper addresses, where the attitude to physical objects is often, to put it mildly, deeply ambivalent, if not frankly fearful, if an encounter with them suggests having too close a visual or tangible contact. The introduction of digital technologies, we argue in these contexts, may not be seen as poor substitutes for the authenticity of the real thing, but as an independent source of potency. The paradox is that in different ways in the cases we deal with, the 3D image, whilst providing life like textured details conjuring the notion of replica, is perceived in a distant and less threatening manner if it cannot be touched or sensed in the same way as photographs or objects. The paradox is that if the 3D image is perceived in such a distant way, and thus being less real, does this distancing allow the image to be internalized and hence facilitate its restitution? In this paper we will discuss, or I will discuss, three recent digital heritage projects to illustrate how the digital economy in this more nuanced sense of recontextualization, is, or maybe not, transforming the way communities access and internalize their cultural heritage held in ethnographic museums around the world. And in addition, the three projects raise important issues about museums and community collaboration, the application of digital technologies to indigenous image-based economies, and the restitution of cultural knowledge. Let me start, therefore, with the first of these case studies. In 2009, a project team was assembled in Europe to scan an entire Solomon Islands warm canoe, measuring some 11 metres in length, held for several decades in a dusty London museum store, the British Museum store in Osman Road, if you know it. 
The project team included anthropologists, geomatic engineers, museum curators, and collection staff from three institutions the British Museum, University of Bergen in Norway, and UCL. The canoe had been acquired by the British Museum in the 1920s from Vela La Vela, a small island in the western Solomon Islands. The project was initiated by the Vela La Vela community, who were keen to reacquire the technical skills in making large ocean-going plank canoes through digital repatriation. And two Solomon Islanders were able to take part in the scanning process. Digital repatriation in this sense was considered to be a particularly appropriate means of return for the Solomon Islands because rural communities already had access to laptops and computers through a UNESCO-sponsored scheme. An extensive VSAT internet broadband network existed, accessible in remote rural areas, which meant that people had the potential to gain access to their own cultural heritage online simply by using a networked computer provided by local educational and governmental institutions. So, given all that, why did they want the canoe? Large ocean-going plank canoes were and are of great significance in the Western Solomons because these vessels were used in headhunting raids across the whole region. Any sighting of the vessels would strike fear in the hearts of many islanders, and so its imagery today evokes the political supremacy of the community who use them. Due to their relation to the past and the fact that canoe building is being revived with the support of Christian missions, the Villa Lavella community were especially interested in gaining access to the complete design of the war canoe, because no others exist. They, understood how the can- they wanted to understand how the canoe was constructed using seasoned planks of wood lashed together. However, they were uncertain how the hull was sealed, using a particular form of uh, material called patinat. In addition, they were interested in learning about the technical application of a shell inlay patina, which covered the bow and stern of the canoe, as well as the type of cordage lashings inside the canoe, which secured the ribbing. Canoe builders had worked from black and white colonial photographs before to help revive these skills, but the shift from 2D to 3D moreover presented an opportunity for these canoe builders to revive their understanding of the hull interior and the shell patina, to which uh, many otherwise had uh, remained forgotten. The scanning process was carried out in London in 2009. It entailed reconstructing the, the, the canoe both in the real and in the digital domain. The actual canoe had had its two tall prows cut off to allow for its transportation and storage, and they had been actually stored elsewhere in the museum uh, by the time, by 2009. Moreover, the, shell, the canoe's shell decorations had also been removed and, so, and stored in separate parts of the museum's store. Scanning each component separately thus allowed the canoe to be digitally reconstructed in its totality using specialist software, with prows and decorations seamlessly attached thus making the object complete for the first time since its acquisition by the British Museum in the 20th century. The process took two weeks, scanning the canoe using a handheld matrix uh, scanner. 
In 2010, the first high-resolution 3D digital image of the war canoe, and these are the old photographs that uh, had been used in order to by, by canoe builders in the Solomons to uh, try and reconstruct the actual building of the canoe and why they wanted uh, this, this greater deal of detail from the 3D image. So by 2010, the first high-resolution 3D digital image of the war canoe was returned to the Solomon Islands by Norwegian colleagues during a ceremony in Honiara. While the political elite in Honiara heralded the, the success of the project, however, the Vela the Villa La Vela community's response to this 3D digital model of the plank canoe was, in contrast, somewhat mixed. The initial repatriated scan, although enthusiastically received by local people, still lacked colour in its digital reconstruction. Cato Berg, the anthropologist working in Vela Lavella and who collected this data, reported that some people were unable to identify the canoe as one of their own. Indeed, they explained that this was because the canoe was undecorated. There were no cowrie shells, no red twill feathers. These had not been added to the scan at this stage, so they did not recognize a digital canoe as a particular class of war canoe from Vela Lavella. They were unable to relate the 3D image, digital image of the canoe to what they imagined the canoe to be in the past, and as a consequence, they claimed the digital image was dead, lifeless, and even broken. Now, this was rectified later, First of all, by finding all the materials that had been cut up and put elsewhere in the store and digitally adding those to the canoe, restoring how they might have been put to the cut-off prow, and then finally providing a 3D image of the, fire of the full thing floating in a perfect blue sea. <laughs> and people were very happy with this. Now, this was rectified later, therefore, when a second, more detailed, full-colour 3D image with decorations was subsequently presented to the Vela Lavella community, this one. Through an easily downloadable plug-in to drive the 3D imaging software, the Vela Lavella community were able to view the canoe in full 3D. And this meant that people could explore the interior of the canoe, its hull and the shell inlay, mediated through the computer keyboard, mouse, and screen. Cato Berg observed how the practice of moving across the surface of the image and examining specific features was termed by people there torching, not touching, torching, as if you're shining a torch on it. And this is an important point we'll return to shortly. Now, whilst this first project reveals the Solomon Islands, Islanders' response to a 3D Im digital images of their cultural heritage, the second case study um, that Graham, uh, Graham, Graham Weir is involved in uh, uh, at the present time uh, is a project currently in progress at the University of Queensland and emphasises relations between objects and images in terms of authenticity and status. This project, launched in January 2012, is funded under the University of Queensland's Collaborative Industry Engagement Fund. Sounds good. The Mobile Museum aims to develop a web-based and mobile phone application that provides access to some of the New Ireland collections held in the Queensland Museum and the University of Queensland Anthropology Museum stores, as well as the two ethnographic 
museums. The project involves collaboration with a new island community in Papua New Guinea and Ortelia, a digital design company based in Brisbane. The context for the initiation of the project is this. For New Islanders, there is a growing desire to access collections of carvings and other objects to revive cultural so-called cultural traditions, especially amongst the younger generation. However, for people living in the village, travel to museums such as in Papua New Guinea National Museum in Port Moresby or the Queensland Museum in Brisbane is almost impossible given their economic circumstances. So much like the Solomon Islands, the project intends to take advantage of mobile telecommunications that have been rolled out over the last five years in Papua New Guinea. Digicel, an Irish mobile phone company, has revolutionised rural communications in the Pacific through the establishment of an extensive mobile telecommunications network which delivers internet access alongside mobile phone coverage. And phone ownership has soared in rural areas where previously people had to travel long distances to access, uh, you know, sort of bad landline uh, connections. Utilising the newly established rural digital network, the project will provide access to 3D digital images of New Ireland collections via mobile phones or laptop computers. In contrast to other large museum digitization projects, rather than simply <coughs> handing over digital content to a digital software company, the project will employ a participatory design methodology. And this methodology involves running participatory design workshops in New Ireland and Brisbane. And the aim is to develop a culturally appropriate online tool in collaboration with the New Ireland community that will actively incorporate cultural sensitivities and protocols within the, within the digital application. So the aim of the workshop is to establish particular protocols regarding gender and age restrictions placed on accessing ancestral images, as well as culturally specific ways of looking at objects. Both projects raise many technical challenges. Now more so than for the New Ireland and the Solomon Island communities themselves as they must both strive to develop new forms of knowledge transmission in accordance to the new economy of images that this technology opens up. And, as you see, this is Graham uh, explaining the 3D Ortelia toolkit, but the whole image-based thing, in uh, a village in northern, northern New Ireland. So far, I've described two projects that involve three-dimensional digitization of museum artifacts that are obviously great significance to two communities in the Pacific. Both demonstrate how, by utilizing existing infrastructure and involving community users, 3D imaging technologies open opportunities for remote access and restitution of cultural knowledge in rural communities here in the Pacific. Yet whilst these two projects underlie the capacity of museums to deliver remote access to their collections through collaboration, why should communities want 3D digital images of their cultural objects rather than the physical return of what they claim to be their cultural property? In the case of New Ireland, there is great concern amongst the, in communities there to sustain the Malangan, particularly northern New Ireland, the Malangan carving tradition. Um, 
well described particularly by my colleague Suzanne Kuschler. Malangang is a complex set of cultural, political and religious rights in which clan groups participate. Land is exchanged and traditional social ties renewed. Malangang, like the piece on the left, this one here, are also funerary carvings displayed during the ritual life cycle to honour the dead. The carvings are embedded in this complex set of rites and make mnemonic reference to social memory and the landscape, as well described by Suzanne Kuschler. From at least the beginning of 2000, debates have continued about the development of a local museum or cultural centre that should so showcase uh, in New Ireland, New Ireland culture and provide a community focus for reinvigorating carving traditions, particularly to the younger generation. Money was even provided by the provincial government in Port Moresby in 2008 to develop a site for a centre, but the money dis mysteriously disappeared, much to the frustration of the National Cultural Commission. Indeed, so problematic and contentious is any proposal to establish a cultural centre that a split occurred between two key supporters of the project, both of whom it became evident were motivated to support the establishment of a museum for their own political ambitions. Yet behind the veneer of politics lies a crucial quest question about the display and the safekeeping of Malangan sculptures. Conversations with New Island people reveals how problematic the return of carvings appear to be. To them, these objects are vessels that are supposed to be absent. Their return presents problems, much like the return of a contagion from ancient times. People say they would not know how to manage these objects. Who would look after them? Where would they be put? And if a museum or a cultural centre were finally established, who would maintain control over its collections? Now this paradox in, and, and scenario has been pointed to already, particularly by Sean Kingston, who wrote a very illuminating essay uh, in uh, Nick Sand Stanley's uh, volume on indigenous museums in the Pacific. And in that essay, he was, uh, where he was discussing the, the setting up of a cultural centre in southern New, New Ireland, Sean points out that objects that have been ceremonially killed are supposed to remain absent. People are not equipped to deal with their return, and any project to establish a museum naturally stalls. Objects, so it appears, are best placed, in fact, in museums in Australia, North America or Europe. While the return of objects raises anxiety and contestation, on the other hand, the restitution of digital images is met with an altogether different reaction. This could be understood through the status New Islands, Islanders accord to images and their centrality in the ritual economy. The Malangang carvings are commissioned for competitive mortuary feasting to commemorate the dead some years after death. These objects are commissioned by clans from locally known carvers who reproduce the Malangan, incorporating clan totems and, and designs. At the height of events in the mortuary feasting cycle, the carvings are revealed to participants 
and shell money is laid at the foot of the sculptures. Kushler describes how the revelatory act is seen as the symbolic death of the carving. It's then removed from public display and then left to rot in the forest in a taboo area. The ritual killing of the figure leads to the shedding of the image as it is internalized by those present, only to be recalled again later when the Malangan is recarved at another mortuary feast. Value, according to Kushler, is thus not attributed to the carving, but to the memory of its imagery and to the right over its reproduction, which is transacted in the exchanges. The provision of access to images, therefore, overrides any concern for the return of physical objects for New Islanders. Any renewed access to the image sustains the Malangang carving tradition and allows people to stake claims to land in northern New Island, as each Malangang makes reference to places in the landscape and ancestral settlements in the mountains. The image makes this possible without the, without the problem of having to manage the object, since the object remains in a sort of cyberspace. But access to images also has another valuable dimension. Digital objects through their handling possession are tangible assets. Having access to images is to have malangan. Having malangan is to have custom. And to have custom is to possess a culture. It's something to hold on to. And this is especially important given the politicization of custom in New Ireland, as elsewhere in the Pacific. To make this point clear, we describe an event that happened in New Ireland in November 2011. The New Ireland provincial government had arranged a two-day workshop focused on reinvigorating the traditional leadership system in the region as they were alarmed about a perceived decline in the moral and social fabric of New Ireland society. They invited all the northern New Ireland chiefs, the Mai Mai, to attend and set forward their plan to establish a Council of Chiefs. The Council of Chiefs, they proposed, would administer custom through regional bodies divided according to linguistic groups, and the provincial government would offer finances and resources to support it. Senior men from the Nalik-speaking area were quick to suggest that they had more custom than other Mai Mai's from northern New Ireland. They pointed to the fact that they had already established their own executive committee for the administering of custom, together with various subcommittees to oversee education, training, language and land, and that they were resourceful. They were working on ways to restitute cultural knowledge through digital technologies. And they claimed that because these images were out there, the Mai Mai's needed finances and resources to manage and safeguard the images with the purchase of computers and phones, and they described these assets as development. So, as an example of this, these are the Murumas that they've uh, restored and uh, recreated in uh, northern New, New Ireland, and uh, as displayed here in 2009. Even though the digital images of Malangan have yet to be made available to people, it reveals how New Island people are strategizing for their arrival, not only to reinvigorate cultural practices, but also to tap into governmental resources through their claims of possessing custom. It also demonstrates how bureaucracies are established to manage images, 
much like museums and archives, through activities of classification and cataloguing. In the Solomon Islands, likewise, there are similar sets of issues relating to the return of physical objects in terms of what to do with them. Objects now in Western museums are still considered powerful, lost in some way, as they present the uh, ancestral past much like saintly relics or remains. The ancestral past is understood to be a powerful realm, one which needs to be controlled. The art historian Francesco Polizzi describes similar stories about wooden saints' relics by the Highland Maya of southern Mexico, found living in caves and brought to Catholic churches, where they're said to roam around at night, thus potentially causing harm because of their inherent power. Images also harbour potentially dangerous forces. Chris Wright has shown how photographs of early 20th century Solomon Islanders are today received with trepidation. Portraits of ancestors wearing an assortment of shell decorations have to be locked away at night in case they roam, causing harm. For Wright, photo photographs can be understood in terms of likeness and presence. Each photograph has a potency index through their content. Images of ancestors, shrines and shell valuables are considered particularly potent. Finger marks on the photographic print in areas uh, where such potent images are depicted suggest how the object can be accessed through sight and touch in a bid to sense the power such images are thought to contain. It indicates how ideas of proximity exist in relationship to photographs and their potency. So this idea of proximity is useful when we consider the Valla community's description of their handling of the three-dimensional canoe as torching. Torching implies a distancing of the image from the viewer, holding it at arm's length, rather than necessarily an idea of proximity. So this distancing is also related to the fact that the canoe appears to float on the screen, abstracted from any social landscape, much like a scientific specimen. In other words, while museums are trying to make objects more real and immersive through 3D imaging and digital repatriation, the paradox is that for Solomon Islanders, or so it seems, uh, it's the 3D, the 3D image is perceived in a distant and less threatening manner. In contrast to the photographs of ancestral shrines and ornaments which thrive on touch and sight, the notion of torching allows for the image to be internalized by holding it at a safe distance and looking, making it particularly culturally appropriate for its restitution. Now my third case is quite a shift. It's to the Sierra Leone Heritage Digital Resource in Sierra Leone in West Africa. The output of a research project entitled Reanimating Cultural Heritage, Digital Repatriation, Knowledge Networks and Civil Society Strengthening in, strengthening in post-conflict Sierra Leone, West Africa. The project is part of a Beyond Text program funded by the UK HRC and with the support of the British Museum Africa program. In this program, its director, Paul Basu, in, 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 uh, at UCL, in anthropology and archaeology there, suggests that museum collections created in the past by colonial collectors for mainly European museums now form what he calls object diasporas, 
that are potentially invaluable as a resource for people in Sierra Leone. These are collections made mainly by expatriate and colonial officers for museums in Europe and North America, where the issue of restitution is embedded in a wider discussion about reanimating cultural heritage through the repatriation of virtual collections, depending on the support being given by host museums in Europe to the Sierra Leone National Museum. And this is its restored post-conflict, post-war um, form now. The digital resource based in the Sierra Leone National Museum has so far been used as an outreach tool to raise awareness of Sierra Leone heritage and its museum. Uh, the National Museum digital resource combines images, videos and texts to re-articulate and even reanimate the objects in the museum using a technology which is seen particularly by the young as interesting, engaging, and modern. As against this 1957 display, which is still in the museum. New digital technologies, it's claimed, by breathing new life into dead museum objects, are functioning in Sierra Leone in much the same way as would be true of the UK or anywhere else. In fact, the language is as much as you might find anywhere else in the context of recoding the museum, you know, to use Ross Parry's term. The principal aim is to support the National Museum of Sierra Leone through the provision of resources, training and capacity building and collaboration aims to develop an IT-based response for digital access to these object diasporas, to the diaspora collections of Sierra Leone. And the model used by Paul Basu to justify the use of digital technologies to give virtual access to these object diasporas is fashionably relational and rather like the British Museum Africa program in general focuses attention on the creation of new partnerships and collaborations at a development nation building kind of level. But who exactly is all this for? And maybe that's not so clear. The issues here are complex and I admit they're not easy to unpick, but some of the strands are quite pertinent uh, within the general argument we want to make in this paper about objects. First of all, it's important to consider who the community is in Sierra Leone. Obviously, access to electricity is limited, particularly in the, for the majority, let alone having access to a computer or the internet. This is certainly changing rapidly. Sierra Leone is in the process of being connected to the underwater high-speed fiber optic network funded by the World Bank's West Africa Regional Communications Infrastructure Program. And certainly the impact of China in Sierra Leone, uh, more most recently, is, going to, is, is having a major effect. Currently and for the foreseeable future, However, computer literacy will be limited to a select educated elite. And at present, a great proportion of this elite harbors a very particular set of values about Sierra Leone's material culture, influenced by ideas of modernity versus so-called traditional society, and increasingly the Pentecostal church, whose preachings are remarkably similar. This being the case, there is something important in the way this sector of society constructs narratives about the kinds of material culture represented in museum collections. 
rather than seeking to challenge Western object interpretations, as might be the case among cultural elites in, for example, the Native American or First Nations Canadian context, uh, like the Reciprocal Research Network of the University of British Columbia, in Sierra Leone, heavy constraints are levied on what kinds of knowledge were appropriate with regard to their current or aspirational positions in society. The current curator of the National Museum, for example, grew up near McKenney and was initiated into the Freetown Bundu or Sawai Women's uh, Society. On a personal or private level, she has many interesting things to say about this society, the initiation process and particularly the appearance of masquerades when they come out. However, when approached to appear as an expert on one of the documentaries for the website, that is, when asked to appear in a public space, her narrative conforms to the already accepted elite vocabulary left over from the early days of the museum under a British-educated male doctor. That is, it's about the role of the Museum for Education, the role of the Museum for Popular Entertainment, the museum as a kind of finishing school. And this slots into her Pentecostal Creole civil servant role. She in fact is not Creole, but the term is used in this case to refer to being urban, Christian and educated. That is, civilised in Elizabeth Tonkin's sense of Creole. As, uh, as she uses it uh, in, in the case of Liberia. All of which suggests that the website aligns itself as an archive for new, mainly foreign object narratives and interpretations which are aligned with this notion of creoness. What the reanimating cultural heritage programme does seem to do is present a different elite image of Sierra Leone, certainly raising interest in Sierra, Leo Sierra, Sierra Leonean collections in the UK and other museums. And this is important for developing tourism, for gaining potential UNESCO World Heritage status, and for external uh, funding and resourcing. It also has the potential to raise the profile of the cultural sector by engaging in the foreign connections which play an important role in raising development agendas. And clearly this sector is important in terms of providing a stronger base for building a, a, a national consciousness than allowed by the current focus on wearing national colours or singing the national anthem. But it sits in a completely different category to a re the range of source community type projects which come to mind when talking about cultural restitution. For the Sierra Leonean National Museum staff, I think perhaps pessimistically, the value of the cultural restitution program for them is primarily about accessing resources and being involved in a broader development world of foreign expertise, funds, equipment and reliable wages. Which current, uh, which current remains the key employer in Freetown uh, at the moment. But there's also the value of these images for cohesion and solidity, given uh, that for the Sierra Leone, Le Leonean diaspora communities uh, and their continued involvement in sending remittances, these images of cohesion and solidity are very important. But one consequence that I want to bring to mind here, relating back to our other case studies, is the importance of presenting powerful objects here as dead objects. At the National Museum, the presence of the Pentecostal Church is strong, particularly with regard to waging a form of spiritual warfare on potent and dangerous objects. 
born-again staff members in the museum are engaged in this, and Jesus is often invoked when something appears to be out of play. Despite this battle, or because of it, narratives present museum objects as examples of craft work, remnants from the past, objects used in entertainment, masquerades are presented as popular culture. In other words, they're presented as dead objects that no longer have efficacy. Part of the claim of reanimating cultural heritage is to use the digital base for restitution of virtual collections to reactivate the dead objects deemed decontextualized and lost in object diasporas all over the world. But it does so by glossing over the potency of objects and performances, describing them as examples of traditional African crafts, as indigenous knowledge, or as popular entertainment. The Bundu mask, for example, as... Uh, shown here, is described as a symbol of African female power in one of the videos on uh, the reanimating cultural heritage site. And this is replicated at the National Museum as the masks become part of a story which links them to the Bundu society as an indigenous system of education for girls in the manner it was tolerated by the British colonial government and by Pentecostals now. And to compare that to perhaps these two girls that have just come out of the Bundu bush, and I think to understand the aesthetics of being a young girl now in Freetown, you'd have to look at probably the, the, the impact of China. So whether the issue whether the objects are dead is more than a side issue here. Even young urban people in Monrovia treat objects like the Bundu or Sobai masks from these female regulatory societies, and this is according to Paul, with apprehension, if not fear, when encountered in the museum display or store. So if the objects are not quite dead, still in some sense capable of their original potency, then the means to neutralize this power and yet preserve the objects from iconoclasm, which certainly Pentecostal preaching would demand if the objects were not in a museum, is to describe them in the context of elite narratives as evidence of craft traditions, to describe initiation of girls as a kind of growing up and contributing to indigenous education as a neutral kind of pedagogy. Now, ironically, the idea that the museum in West Africa should be a container for the secretion of powerful objects, a place to store them, keep them out the way, and certainly not for visiting and viewing, was already articulated in building the first colonial museums in Ghana and Nigeria. When the National Museum of Ghana was created in the 1940s Gold Coast, various views on what a museum in Africa should be were elicited by a committee set up by the British Colonial Office. It was chaired by the eminent biologist Julian Huxley and the then Keeper of Ethnography at the British Museum promoted the idea that the display of museum collections in a colonial museum would encourage social cohesion through education by providing a sense of collective identity drawing on pre-colonial histories. And Sophie Mew cites one of the few instances of what local people thought of these museum experiments. A young Nigerian sculptor Ben Enwonyu, who was studying in London at the time, argued in a memorandum to the colonial office then that, and I quote, the sort of museum in West Africa should be a very big house which takes after the shape and style of the old shrines. 
the old objects that the Nigerian government wishes to preserve look dead in foreign museums because they're placed in the wrong atmosphere in which they're exposed to the ordinary eyes of men and women. Their powers of mystery and ritual things have been cut off. His report was discounted. A museum was seen as an educational, not a spiritual institution. And instead, the National Museum of Ghana was built in Accra, architecturally inspired by and reflecting the dome of the hall built for the Festival of Britain in 1951. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, paper by Peter Brobst uh, on uh, an example of the uh, reaction to, and perhaps the, the, the backlash to this, particularly uh, in Nigeria with Susan Wenger and Uli Bayer and Duro Lapidu, uh, on the revival of the, uh, o of the ocean uh, gro grove in uh, Ashogbo uh, and the way in which that idea of spirituality became fused with a certain kind of idea of Western art involvement in revitalizing uh, cultural heritage in Nigeria in the 50s and 60s, um, which Peter is working on at the present time and which is uh, really quite fascinating. And that uh, ocean grove is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So we, the, the ironic nature of the whole thing has, has much to, uh, to, to be commented on. Now, whilst much of this all has to do with uh, various kinds of images and, 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 and ideas about nationalism, perhaps, it's the, image of from, uh, it's the separation of image from object, and they're rematerializing as value in new images and objects that relates us to the separation of the potency of dangerous things from the everyday visible world. Much the same situation could be seen in contemporary cases from the grass fields of Cameroon. And here, given the time, I'll just quickly... And there are dangerous objects, which uh, these are the Kamajob masks, which uh, are associated particularly with the, uh, you know, the soldiers in, these, in the Sierra Leonean Civil War, and which are, are not shown on display in the National Museum, for example. Too powerful to be accessions. And there are the negotiating around the dangerous objects, these, hunting, uh, these hunter shirts uh, also, which are shown in the museum, but uh, with these uh, uh, photographs and explanations underneath in order to uh, somehow neutralise the forms. Okay, very quickly, um, just as an example of this idea of potency of objects, um, these are museums which have been uh, recently built in the grass fields of uh, Cameroon, and uh, with the help of an Italian NGO. And uh, each of them have been funded by external partners and sources. And uh, the museums have been built within the, uh, within the uh, local fondoms or chiefdoms, in other words, as palace museums. And they represent very much a different idea from the so-called National Museum in Cameroon and Yelde, which is, uh, to all intents and purposes, a bit of a failure. Now, I also think that, the, uh, in a way, these palace museums are a means of storing and keeping objects which are, in a sense, in a kind of gradation of potential potency. From objects that are in the palace, objects that are in the regulatory or secret societies in the palace, to these objects which are in the museums, in the palaces, and open to being seen and potentially even being touched. But there's a sort of series of movements back and forth, if you like, between these, di 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 these different ideas of potency. 
What is very striking, it seems to me, from the several visits I've made to at least two of these museums, in Mankon and Babungo, is nobody goes to see them, nobody goes to visit them except for a few tourists, i.e. white European or visitor tourists. But on the other hand, this idea of collections and making collections has quite a strong history here and a, quite a strong p- p- uh, potentiality. Uh, this is Fumban, uh, or Bamum, in, uh, in, in uh, the grass fields of Cameroon, and the palace of, uh, of, uh, uh, built by Sultan Enjoya in 1917, uh, when it was uh, ministered by the Germans. And uh, his, he built or rebuilt the palace uh, with uh, using uh, the help of German uh, uh, technology and uh, kilns for making bricks, very much in this sort of European style. And sometime after 1917, 1917 and 1920, 1922, he built or established a museum in the palace, his own museum, for keeping ancestral objects. And these were objects which had been in the museum for certainly for the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, but in 1922, uh, the Njar Ancestral Festival was banned by the French. Njoya, by 1924, had been exiled and sent to Yaoundé, and uh, the objects may have basically stayed in the palace, but have been kept in the palace until 1997, when the Injar Festival was reinstituted, and objects have been brought out of the palace onto the festival ground and being reused. So these are the objects from Enjoyer's Fet collection being reinstituted and reused now. So the idea of potent objects and perhaps the issue of display remains an issue because the potency of display is so obvious a feature of life in general in much of West Africa. In contrast perhaps to the sacrificial-like description of objects in the Malangan or New Island Melanesian world, where ritual objects created in a world of organic materials should be decomposed, rotting or burning. In this Cameroon grassfield setting, display is linked to the hidden and to the secret. The display of objects in a museum or their manufacture for everyday use and viewing is essentially an iconoclastic act, linked to the the desire to render the objects visible, impotent, or declare their insignificance in any ongoing ritual sense. But they're on the edge of other spaces that hold more potent objects and materials. So in these palace museums, we have stored a selection of things that now could be seen or touched, whereas elsewhere there would be things that could only be seen, and finally there are things elsewhere that could be neither seen nor touched, but may be heard on appropriate occasions. So the contrast here with with Melanesian sacrificial economies is quite relevant for us. Sean Kingston describes how in southern New Ireland, in contrast to the northern part where Susan Kushler worked, uh, and where tambuang masks are used in funerary rituals, the spirit is finely detached as as an image and the mask is allowed to rot away. Interestingly, there are none of these masks in European collections, unlike the hundreds of Malangan collected from Kushler's area. And, of course, the Malangan are collectibles in the same way that African masks came to designate African art. They simply escape the ritual ending in a decomposed and rotting state, 
because made of wood, they would survive European collecting. So, concluding thoughts. Our case studies all resonate with the ideals of how new forms of collaboration between source communities and ethnographic museums are mediated by 3D digital images. Implementing consultative workshops and a participatory design methodology, it's claimed will help museums understand the political, cultural and technical needs of individual communities. Digit assets are simply placed out there in the ether of cyberspace, but resonate with a sea change of current museological thinking around participatory politics and collaboration that stakes a claim alongside the hegemony of digital elites. But they do so in different ways. It's the image that is important in the Solomon Islands and New Ireland, and to be able to possess it is to be able to possess the object. But also to possess knowledge of images allows high-ranking men to fashion themselves as ancestral and thus, and thus tap into the financial benefits handed out by the provincial government. So through reclaiming digital images, images of your own, you're able to legitimize your clan history or land, but also operate within the government's sphere. So what appears important is that it does not matter that a real object is returned. This is because the image gives access to the actual object, which, which can then be reproduced. We're perhaps influenced here anyway by the general consensus amongst Melanesianists that it is the translation of dangerous objects into images. In Suzanne Kuschler's sense of the sacrificial logic of the amalgamation of materially decomposed identities into everlasting images that creates a sense of order. Museums with their constitutive practices of display, conservation and storage seem inappropriate or undesired, yet clearly they have some affinity with the idea of a virtual confined space where mental images can be experienced. By contrast, in the West African cases, the objects themselves are kept because of their intrinsic potency in ways that keep them apart and unvisited. But outside the shrine-like appearance of the museum, exposure to technologies and images provide access to skill and identification with modernity, but also to a more neutral idea of the potency of the image. What appears important is that in the end, in all our cases, it does not matter that the real object is returned. This is because the image gives access to the actual object, which can then be reproduced. So if you're going to repatriate digital images and expressions, then one needs to understand how these images are utilized or deployed, particularly politically. So possessing the image is to possess the object. And in this sense, what is interesting to debates about ethnographic objects and in repatriation is that even though objects remain behind lock and key in institutions, digital heritage carries the potential to unmoor images from their material forms through their circulations as photos and digital images. Yet perhaps more intriguing are the new sets of research questions that emerge from this new economy of virtual ethnographic objects. Who owns them? How are they used? And in what way do they constitute knowledge? How compatible are digital technologies to the image-based knowledge systems of the Pacific or African communities. Certainly there is evidence to suggest that in the Pacific, some groups are taking steps to accommodate digital images in their lives. 
Some Maori groups maintain three-dimensional digital objects of cultural objects are imbued with the same ancestral associations as real objects, and so ritual protocols have had to be established to deal with their reception. But in the wider scheme of debates in museum and heritage studies, this preliminary research raises the vital question, do museums still need objects? Stephen Kahn's response is to call for an ideological return to the status of the object in museums and a recognition of the object's power in fostering civil society, echoing uh, Tony Bennett's earlier work on the Great Museum Age. Yet as we enter the second age of museums, characterized by collaboration, co-curation and partnerships, Kahn's words remind us how museums still cling on to the ideological notions of the object rooted in terms of its originality and authenticity. Indeed, if museums continue to hold on to the ethnographic objects in their collections, then perhaps an alternative perspective is to suggest the second age of museums will be defined as the era when three-dimensional objects begin to take on a more real and significant presence than those locked away in museum stores all over the world. Thank you.